Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the HVMN podcast. And I'm your host, Dr. Lat Mansour, a PhD in physiology, anatomy, and genetics, and the research lead of health via modern nutrition. And if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave a review. And if you have any question, leave us a comment. And as always, we appreciate it if you can share it with a friend. Now, without further ado, let's get into this episode of HVMN podcast. Today, we have Ben Smith here joining with me in person, and we're doing things slightly different today. We are introducing, you know, the guests here in person, but we're also taking a keto and IQ shot together before we go straight into the podcast. So, Ben, welcome. Yeah, cheers. And this Thanks is the HVMN way. Yes, naturally. So, Ben, what's your latest um, health and fitness obsession that you're, you know, currently? Yeah. Doing? So, uh, I recently, well, I should back up. I did buy your product ages ago like many, many years ago and just sort of, I wouldn't say forgot about it, but just stopped using it. And I recently reconnected with your team and was sent graciously, which I appreciate a box of the product. And to be honest, like I'm not someone who uses, you know, uh, sort of nootropics or, or caffeine really. I'm not saying that this is either of those things, but not someone who really like changes my, my mood when I'm working too much. But I obviously retried your product again once they sent me that box. And let me tell you like, this is the shameless plug. I'm not getting paid for this. Uh, I promise. But it's been rocket fuel. So I guess one of the things I've been focused on to answer your question recently is sort of like hacking the first four hours of my workday mm-hmm. um, using supplementation. And in this case, ketone IQ is one of them. Um, obviously, like very small doses of caffeine uh, or nicotine also can be helpful. But when you stack them together, it's like I feel like a Superman of sorts. So that's kind of one thing I've been playing around with quite a bit. Um, another thing to maybe uh, make it not sound like so much of a promotion um, is uh, is my aura ring as well, which I've had for over a year, but I've been diving pretty deep into sleep um, and trying to optimize the, the sort of breakdown between REM and deep and light sleep as well. So those are kind of the two areas of focus recently. Nice, nice. I mean, a lot of people nowadays are trying to buy hack their way to optimize their work hours, optimize their work productivity. Um, and obviously sleep is quite mm. important. And we talk quite a bit on the podcast as well. Um, as we talk about training, you can't talk about training and healthy lifestyle without actually touching on recovery and rest and sleep. So um, let's go a little bit into your background and your story. Mm. Tell our listeners what your um, story is. Yeah, so... I grew up uh, in the Maryland area. Before that, I was born in England. So my on my father's side of the family is English. Um, so I sort of split, uh, I had a split household growing up. You know, my, my dad was English, my mother was American. Um, and that kind of created for an interesting environment, right? Uh, so on my dad's side, very like football or soccer friendly and grew up supporting. Football. Yeah, football. <laughs> uh, yeah, the accent gives that away with you. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of my time growing up watching and playing soccer. And towards the end of my high school career, um, I started to get into CrossFit and, you know, sort of nutrition and dieting, et cetera, to, to sort of, you know, use that as a tool to, to get bigger. You know, I was fairly small and I guess weak, for lack of a better word, uh, at least objectively speaking, and wanted ways to sort of like, you know, pack on muscle and, you know, weightlifting in the gym was the first segue into that. And then eventually I got into CrossFit before I went to college. Um, so, yeah, I, I spent you know, four years in University of North Carolina at Wake Forest. And towards the end of my time there, started two CrossFit gyms as well, which occupied probably four or five years of my life, both from a training perspective, a business and career perspective, and just um, 
a personal perspective. So I was really big into that community. Um, and that was sort of like the foundation, you know, foundational exposure for me into the wellness world. And that's what sort of led me to where I am now, which is, um, you know, as the founder of a men's skincare brand and a sort of hobbyist biohacker on the side. So yeah, I've, I'm 29 now. I turned 30 in seven days or six days. So happy early birthday. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, wasn't fishing for a happy birthday there, but more to say, I've spent the last 10 we'll years. We'll send you more keys to Nike's. <laughs> very much appreciated. The rocket fuel is amazing. Um, so spent the last sort of 10 years um, getting a baseline in like the gym and then into nutrition. And, you know, over the last five or six years, have spent more time sort of in the, I guess, for lack of a better word, the biohacking world. I, I lived with a CrossFitter back in Malaysia right mm -hmm. after my PhD. So I did, um, I did my undergrad in Nottingham. And then I did my master's in New York and Columbia University and then went back to UK and did my PhD in Oxford. So that's where the- You're the very British, underqualified then, right? The British, <laughs> British connection yeah. came in. But um, when I was back in Malaysia, my housemate, who's also my landlord, he is a CrossFitter. So I know roughly what, I mean, I've never done it myself. Um, and I know, you know, what CrossFit is, what they do, and they do all the times and all the really uh, intense workout. In your experience, you know, what does- CrossFit have that has an advantage over conventional weightlifting, for example, or gym. I say this as a as a former CrossFitter. I no longer do CrossFit, so I will I will try to paint as objective of a picture as I can. Yeah, um, which is tough because I did it for so many years and was involved in the business side of it, etc. Not at the corporate level, but as a gym owner. Right. So, from a training perspective you have the community element, which is like fairly obvious, right? But that, that that's a big deal, right? So when it comes to transforming one's body, especially if you're starting in a place seen as quite metabolically unhealthy, if you're very overweight, have never exercised or are quite old and don't have good bone mass, etc., CrossFit can be quite beneficial because the accountability and the fun and the democratization of uh, access to movements that you would have historically thought are like way out of your realm of possibility uh, make it very attractive and make it very sticky as a product as well. So a lot of time, like, you know, people that are really engendered in the CrossFit community often were like a bit weird or a bit like sort of outcast that myself included, right? doesn't mean everyone is, but, um, it's usually a hobby that like adults find and they really sink their teeth into. Um, so, you know, suffice to say people that kind of come at things, from a very unhealthy perspective and join a CrossFit gym often stick around. So by that logic, you could say and extrapolate out, usually the results are pretty significant. The challenge with CrossFit is that it's a two-edged sword, right? So the community element can be very positive, but if you're a very competitive person, it's very difficult to have a check and balance on uh, your motivation level in the gym when, you know, there might be guys like you or I who might be much younger. And then there's say like for the sake of conversation, maybe a 60 year old man who's just starting to work out. He has just as big of an ego as perhaps we do. And it's just as competitive, if not maybe more than us and sees us, he could potentially be at risk of pushing himself beyond what he's physically capable of. This goes down to young people too, not just old people um, or older people. So that kind of, can, can have some some deleterious results because what you what you have basically is an untrained individual doing high volume at high intensity in a very competitive environment and that then comes down to the coach uh, and if the coach you know the coaching ratio of coaching to clients in a class and in a gym is not quite low and quite attention driven or the coach isn't as competent as they should be 
you can have a lot of injuries in, in CrossFit because you're doing very technical movements um, from a gymnastics perspective, Olympic weightlifting perspective, and, and just um, sort of powerlifting perspective as well. And those are all very difficult sort of lifelong pursuits in and of themselves. And if you put them all together with an untrained individual who's competitive in a coaching environment where the coach isn't that competent and, and maybe not is, is incompetent but might not have the attention they need, that can create quite a dangerous environment. So my, my thinking now on CrossFit, having sort of like moved on to other training for my own personal reasons, is that there's a lot of upside and there's also a lot of downside. It just sort of depends. Right. And, and that's a very nice objective breakdown as well. And what I'm hearing is essentially the community aspect of CrossFit is essentially having a group of people as your gym buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I always find myself, you know, way more accountable when I have a gym buddy to go to gym with because you you sort of make plans and you're going to be there at that time because someone's there waiting for you. Someone's there waiting to, to give you a spot and all of that. So I think that's definitely a very positive side of CrossFit. And the other thing I wanted to ask, which you actually covered, is the injury because the way I see CrossFit, I'm like looking at people doing these really huge intensive movements. I'm like, gosh, I'm, I'm looking at, them and feeling painful for my joints um so i was i was going to ask you know what sort of percentage of i mean doesn't need to be a number like is there a higher chance of injury doing crossfit versus conventional yeah hard for me to quantify off the top of my head i would say this comes back to the coaching so i'll I'll play the uh the the other side of this coin and and defend crossfit a bit here if you have a gym Mm. that has a good coaching to trainee or, or, or sort of member ratio and the coaches are highly trained, your chances of injury are very low. But if it's a scenario where it's kind of like a more raw gym, they're, they're not really making a lot of money at the gym, which is often the case. So oftentimes a lot of CrossFit gym owners do want to have and provide the best possible experience with the most attentiveness from a coaching perspective, but they may not have the money. Then you can find yourself in a scenario where you might have one coach looking after, you know, 12, 14, 16, even up to 20 people, right? Right. And even the best coach in that scenario can't give each individual the attention they might need, or they might end up over-indexing on one person who needs more help versus the others in the class. So I would say if you have an environment uh, or, or, or the gym is set up from a business perspective to have a good ratio of coach to client, and they're also competent, CrossFit is a pretty good way to work out, in my opinion, for, for almost all people. Um, now, when you get into the more competitive elements of it, where you know you're pushing yourself, you're training two times a day, that's more treating it as a sport and should be treated completely differently um, from the generalized conversation we're having now for like an average civilian. Right, and then when you have adrenaline running, you have you know your testosterone and getting all competitive. Obviously, you're going to push yourself like beyond your comfortable limit, and that's when yeah. things may or may not go wrong. You know, when you're fatigued out and you may think like mentally you're still strong, but then your 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 muscles and all of that start to um, get more tired and, and increase the risk of injury. Well, you're also assuming that people have a level of body awareness to know when to stop, and mm-hmm. they also have their ego in check as well, yeah. enough to, one, have the awareness, like I mentioned a second ago, and then also have um, the sort of, uh, I guess, what would you call that? Like ability to know when to slow down, and it's mm-hmm. to do with the ego, right? Yeah. So having those two simultaneously is a big ask of most people, especially competitive males. Yeah. I'll speak for myself. Um, so yeah, th- th- it's a very nuanced conversation. And I will say, despite moving on from CrossFit now myself, I do think CrossFit gets a lot of 
probably worse press than it should um, for being sort of like dangerous. Mm -hmm. When in reality, as with most things, right, it's more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. And it requires um, quite a balanced take and a nuanced um, conversation like we're having now to really unpack whether it's for you. Right, right, right. And, you know, you sort of mentioned earlier that you're speaking as a former CrossFitter and what made you decide to move on and, and not do CrossFit? Yeah, so in, in full transparency, you know, some of the guys at my gym, uh, both the coaches and the folks I was training with, are just absolute savages, right? And when, when I say savages, what I mean specifically is like some of them are in the special forces now, some are ex-military, some are former cops. And that's not to say people in the, the sort of armed forces um, all are like, you know, freaks of nature athletically, but you know, the people that I was around were. And that's a really good environment to be in from a training perspective, if you know how to gauge your ego. But I eventually pushed it to the point where, you know, it was starting to, my body was starting to break down. And I should caveat that by saying, I also was in the tail end of my college career and like in my early 20s. So I was also drinking tequila a few nights a week. And when you have like a very competitive uh, CrossFit training regimen where I was training, you know, six to eight times a week, sometimes multiple days a week, as you can, you know, figure out based on that number with, you know, poor recovery from going out, that's a recipe for disaster. So I don't want to point the finger only at CrossFit there. It was more of probably a lifestyle thing. My body started to break down and, you know, eventually I got seriously injured. I tore my, tore my labrum, uh, snatching. And shortly after that, I tore my meniscus, uh, playing soccer. Um, so my career kind of slowed down a career, so to speak. Um, and from there, like just had to basically like customize my program or my training regimen to where I was just working around those two injuries. And like, if you have a bum knee and a bum shoulder, if you have one of them, you can kind of like get by. Right. But if they're both bum, you know, that becomes quite difficult. So eventually, uh, probably like four or five years ago, I had surgery on both of them to repair them. I tried everything to try to fix them. Um, but the surgical route made sense in the end. And after that, I just was so, uh, not scared, but maybe, yeah, I guess fearful, arguably, that of that happening again, that I was like, I can't train like this anymore. So I need to find a more sustainable, longevity-focused program um, based on my personal needs, and that's what I do now. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I know you have a passion for, you know, biohacking and longevity, and, and it makes sense with your story as well, um, you know, going from CrossFit and really competitive and really active to, you know, going through the injury and then bouncing back up. And just before, you know, we, we sort of talked about the past and before we move into the present. Now, can you share with our listeners what, well, first of all, what is your current fitness routine? And, and secondly, what sort of lessons or, or advice that you would give our listeners in terms of training and optimizing longevity, optimizing health in, in general before we move on to, to yeah. the next section? I think it's helpful to push it early in your life and when I say early I mean sort of like once you're fully grown and developed so I call it for most people 2021 20, to like the sort of 25 range just to see what you're capable of I'm not saying overtrain or go absolutely crazy and take anabolic steroids or anything. I'm not that's not what I'm suggesting but I do think it is important to kind of see what you're physically capable of I speak from this experience as a man just because it's kind of good to know right it's good to say like hey you know, I deadlifted whatever, make up the arbitrary number, 500 pounds, or I squatted 353 plates. And like, I know what it felt like to be that strong. And then once you establish kind of a baseline and have kind of been there and done that, then you can kind of move and optimize for a more longevity focused program, which is what I've done now. And the irony of that is in doing so, 
I'm actually stronger now than when I was, um, you know, only lifting around like certain metrics and goals and targets. Right. So what I do now is what I would call like functional bodybuilding, which Marcus Philly, um, who's a former CrossFit athlete has kind of popularized where it's basically in my case, training four days a week. There's usually a compound lift. So a squat bench deadlift, um, one of the, as the first movement, and then a little bit of bodybuilding after that around that same muscle group. And then usually some sort of like dynamic movement, either sprinting, kettlebell work or core work after. Um, or working through like a imbalance or injury that I have at the time. So I only train four days a week now, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. Train at the same time, 4 p.m. every day. Grip strength is usually the strongest around 4 p.m. Um, from a circadian rhythm standpoint. So that's when I like to train. Um, and, and that's kind of what I do. I also practice yoga twice a week. Which and how long do you train for? Just an hour. I warm up for 10 minutes uh, and then I train for about 50. Sometimes it's a little longer than that. But to be honest, I've never been in better uh, shape um, from a weight uh, body mass standpoint um, and a strength standpoint. So actually, you know, pulling my foot off the accelerator has given my nervous system more time to recover. And, you know, being almost 30, I'm stronger now than when I you know, was maxing out, you know, doing powerlifting and Olympic lifting five, six years ago. And I'm lighter than I was then too. And you get more time. <laughs> and I have way more time. Yes. And I have no, I'm totally injury free. That's that the sounds, most important. Yeah, that is absolutely most important. And that, that sounds like a great routine because, you know, I see myself like end up working out an hour and a half, five times a week. And, you know, I want to put in more yoga. I want to put in more stretching. I want to put in more cardio. But at the end of the day, when you work out that much, you just feel so tired. Mm. You're just fatigued at the end of a lifting session mm. and you feel good but there's not much room you can do anything else yeah i'd say there's a real balance to be struck it's of course nuanced and different for everyone most of the the folks i've listened to who are at the top of their fields are like andy galpin andrew huberman all these folks seem to agree a consensus around most normal people should be training weight training three to four times a week Five if you're really pushing it, but you got to really be focused on food and recovery if you're doing that. And then once or twice a week, you have some sort of longer cardio session. And then once or twice a week, you have a high intensity sort of more anaerobic session. So think like sprints or something, which you can work into the other resistance right. training sessions at the end, which is what I do. Um, and that seems to be like a fairly balanced way um, to set up like a, a workout program, one that deals with resistance training. So, you know, working on muscle density and bone mass, which is great for longevity. You're working on, you know, sort of the cardiovascular benefits of getting into an aerobic state. So like longer runs, et cetera. Uh, and then you also get all the benefits um, sort of hormonally speaking from an anaerobic session as well. So I touch all my bases there with my program. And then I use yoga as a kind of, as a kind of way to one, like sort of, you know, calm my nervous system. Cause as you can probably tell from this podcast, I'm pretty tightly wound and I like to move at a million miles an hour. So that's kind of like a forced, uh, you know, hour to hour and a half where I'm really intentional with my breath. Uh, usually I like to do it in a hot setting. And of course, like you get the benefits of moving into um, pretty deep positions with your joints and, and your muscle tissue. So there tends to be a good recovery element to that as well. So that's kind of how I think about exercise. And then the last thing I'd mention is I walk 10,000 steps a day, at least every yeah. day. Yeah. Um, I was, I was in a podcast earlier today, I got interviewed and I was just saying how people do underestimate the benefits of just brisk walking on top of, you you know, working out. People think that just because they're lifting heavy already, you know, they don't need to, to walk, but sometimes those walking, those steps actually uh, bring a complete different sort of sets of benefits. 
um, on top of what you're already doing. And what Ben just said about, you know, the importance of resistance training versus slow, steady cardio versus anaerobic training is so spot on because um, for our listeners there, if you listen to episode 199 with Luisa, Dr. Luisa Nicola, um, we talked about recent studies that looked at resistance training at about 75% um, max um, rep. They saw an increase in hippocampal um, volume. So essentially your brain, especially hippocampus, which is the region that's uh, responsible for learning and memory, increase with resistance training. And then we looked at um, aerobic training, cardio uh, training, zone two for at least 45 minutes, three times a week. They saw uh, an increase in mitochondrial biogenesis. So you're increasing your the, the, the factories that make ATP, which is energy, in your body with that sort of training as mm. well. And then obviously with anaerobic exercise, you are increasing your cardiorespiratory um, ability and capacity to manage that sort of high um, intense exercise that will always put you in hypoxia, which is low oxygen environment. And then, you know, you adapt to it and that increases that um, cardiovascular and anaerobic capacity. Yeah, I think for me, at a, at a much less technical level than you just broke it down, I tend to um, I tend to be selfish in the sense that like the, the the benefits are quite obvious. So I I without a shadow of a doubt make time for these uh, training sessions, no matter what's going on in my life. And I think sometimes it's okay to be uh, what I would call like um, judiciously uh, judiciously. Wow, I'm still not saying that right. It's been a long day. Um, selfish. We'll just move on. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, in the sense that like the benefits are so obvious with those uh, core tenets of exercise. And I would almost go as far to say, like when I look at, you know, hiring team members or looking at my friend groups or potential romantic partners, it almost is like a given that I want them to also be at least somewhat invested in their health and wellness, especially from an exercise standpoint, because the hardship that you go through, if you, if you've pushed it in training, um, means you can typically adapt to stress much better, whether that be in a work environment or a romantic environment or with your friends or if you're traveling with them, et cetera. So in my, in my anecdotal experience, it's just a really good indicator of people's ability to handle stress. Um, so that's why I value personally at a selfish level exercise because of the objective benefits, but also in how I view, uh, my relationships as well. I don't know if that's something you consider when you, um, you know, think about, hiring at, at the business or, or how you keep your friends, et cetera. But it's been a big thing for me, especially lately. Uh, absolutely. I mean, for my line of work as well, I mean, the whole, my whole research during my PhD was on cardiovascular disease and, mm. um, and diabetes. And that's also coincidentally um, fit with my family's sort of medical history. My father's side has very high prevalence of heart attack. My dad, passed away my late dad passed away from mm. stroke and before that he had a heart attack my half brother died of heart attack at the age of 45 and my mom's side has really high prevalence of diabetes so for me to study you know the science behind that and the mechanism of action and the metabolic uh, metabolic pathways around those and what difference um what difference are there the differences are there between a, a diabetic heart versus a healthy heart yeah. you know and then not practice what I, I've learned, that would be very hypocritical, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's, it's one, it's taking myself away from the increased risk that my genetics may or may not have 
you know, presented me with. Um, and two, it's just generally just feeling better. And I think, like, especially people with anxiety, for example, exercise actually helps you relax more instead of, you know, a lot of people, they are anxious to even go to the gym. They're anxious to, to have all these people around them and judging, him, uh, judging them, thinking that they don't know what they're doing. But in fact, if you actually do the exercise, there are studies showing that helps the relaxation of those uh, pathways of the overexcitation in the brain. It relaxes you tremendously, and that actually um, improves the, the anxious feelings. Well, the objective benefits are quite obvious, right? Yeah. You've just kind of listed them out innumerably, and it seems like you also have you know, quite a unfortunate family history of diabetes and, and heart issues. So right. for you, it's, it's quite obvious why. I, I would even venture to say, you know, touching on your comment around thinking about others looking at you in the gym, like, sure, if you do something absolutely asinine in the gym, people are absolutely going to look at you, but they're going to do so on the street too, right? Yeah. Or in a bar or in a club or in the, you know, sort of the workplace or right now, right? If I did something totally out of character, you would look at me. But the reality start, is... Start working leg day on, yeah. on, on, a, on a lap pull-down machine. Yes. Point being though, I'm bringing it all full circle here. Yeah. Most people don't care. Because they have their own things going on, they're worried about they're worried about their paycheck, they're worried about their company, they're worried about their you know partner, their family, their health issues, and I would actually venture to say most people aren't really paying attention, uh, whether it's in the gym or whether it's you know the way you're walking down the street. Most people don't care. So that sort of like idea that I'm not going to go to the gym because you know other people are going to judge me, I actually in my personal experience again n of one. I really respect when I see someone that like clearly is just starting out their fitness journey, you know, putting in the hours in the gym. And to me, that's like a sign. That's a really, that's a really obvious sign of someone that's like willing to put their ego to one side and put the work in. And so like, again, I'm not like judging them at all, but I, when I see that, I, I go, wow, the courage that that person has to, to get in here. I'm talking like if they're clearly like metabolically unhealthy, um, that really is a good sign to me. And I really respect it. But again, that's just me. And I would say, you know, exercise has been totally life-changing for me. And once you, once you start down that path and start to experience the way you feel, which is a much improved condition and, and the way you look, it just becomes a compounding effect. Right. And it's just a hamster wheel. I've never jumped off. Yeah. Since I and and I'm, I, I got goosebumps just you mentioning that when you see somebody who is metabolically unhealthy going to the gym, like I, when I see that in the gym, it actually reminded me of myself when I started. You know, I have been overweight all my life until I was 22 mm. when I was in undergrad. Before then, I hated exercise. I hated physical activity. I was a smoker. I was living a very unhealthy life, mm. knowing that I have had all these risk factors, but I didn't know better in terms of the science until I learned more about it and then I started exercising. And it's really endearing to see these people in the gym because I'm like, someone, you know, everyone starts has to start somewhere and they are starting it now. And I started, you know, years ago and and i have been through like i really empathize with them because i have gone through the same difficulties the same challenges that they're going through right now mm -hmm. um and kudos to them you know like rather than accepting fate and just whine about it or just say that there's nothing you can change there's a lot of things that somebody can change you know whether it's through lifestyle intervention through diet through even surgery Bioretic surgery has been known as the most successful sort of surgery to help. But obviously, you don't want to go there until you've tried everything that is within your power 
and within the foundation of your lifestyle, your diet, your sleep, your training, and all of that, which can easily be sort of step by step if you find the right people, right, you know, guidance and right information, can easily be done. Yeah, I, I like to think of the. I don't want to say human experience, but the the physical wellness experience is kind of like a pretty simple equation, right? You have the lifestyle components, you have nutrition, and then you have recovery. Um, lifestyle would include exercise, or maybe I would add a fourth for, for exercise, right? Exercise is probably the least important part. Now, if you want to be 8% body fat, etc., of course, exercise becomes a big deal. Um, but if you can get the nutrition equation, sort of just looking at it at a basic level, macro calories in versus calories out balanced well, and that goes in the right direction, then and only then does it start to matter about micronutrients, like what the types of food you're actually eating. First, just getting the quantities right is the big unlock for a lot of people. And once you do that, then you can sort of shift to micronutrients. And then it becomes sort of a sleep equation. If you're sleeping well, you're doing the right exercise and you're eating sort of the roughly the right quantity of food and you're not you know, smoking, drinking, taking tenuous amounts of illicit drugs and, and sort of you know, at a very high stress level in the lifestyle part of your life, you should be able to get, you know, quote unquote fit actually quite easily. It's, it's a lot less complicated than people think. And I think it's easy for someone like you or I to say who've been on like a, you know, multi-decade journey arguably and have been lucky enough to be surrounded by some of the world's top experts. But it really is that simple. I think it just comes down to starting. And once you start building that positive momentum, in my experience, when I owned the gyms, we had these sort of weight, six week weight loss programs. And the biggest indicator of whether or not someone would uh, continue down the path of, you know, becoming more metabolically healthy was seeing results. So once you start to build that momentum, that hamster wheel I started to mention, it's pretty much a, a reinforcing, you know, feedback loop where they feel better, they look better, the people around them are noticing, it just becomes a very almost like a groundswell of sorts. So I would encourage anyone who's sort of thinking about getting fit or taking the plunge just to get going, stick with it for three to four weeks. And if you don't start seeing results by then, I mean, assuming you do, um, I would imagine your, your commitment to the longer term will be a lot easier once you start to see those results. No, absolutely. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge our sponsors of this show, Ketone IQ, the best exogenous ketone you can take to elevate your blood ketone levels. I personally take it every day before a podcast to wire my brain up, before and after my workout to really feel my body. So give yourself a chance, take a shot, and you will feel the difference within minutes. So head over to hvmn.com and use the code HVMNPOD20, that is HVMNPOD20, for 20% off your purchase, and enjoy your ketone IQ, and give your brain the perfect fuel. And I would bring that to even a more basic level. When I was working for a company um, that does uh, that did a diabetes management program, mm. they actually saw in a study that even just weighing yourself, you know, they, they, they these people who are either early onset diabetes or sort of like pre-diabetic or diabetic and they follow this program, the more they weigh themselves, the, the it's correlated to better results just because people can see those improvements. And people are very driven by positive feedback. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely true. I think, you know, trust the process and keep going. One thing I have to point out though is the dangers of social media. And how, how much time do how, you have, by the how way? Does <laughs> that, how does that skew your perception of how long it would take to achieve such results? So that, that is definitely you know, one thing that's important. There. The dangers of social media is a conversation we can sit here and have for probably until the end of time. I would say in my personal experience, 
it's been a weird couple of years to sort of open your phone and see, um, you know, obviously very good looking people constantly, you know, everyone's kind of inundated with, you know, the, the, the quote unquote best looking people, um, whether that be males or females. So let's not forget that they're also just people too. They don't usually look exactly like that in person, whether it's like a fitness model or a supermodel, doesn't matter. So I would say- It's, be- it's almost like suddenly the fact that the statistics of 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy yeah. seems very, very mythical. It's Yeah, it almost seems mythical when you open your Instagram app, right? But um, I wanted to bring this up a second ago when you were talking about the diabetes stuff. I believe it's like 30 to 40%, and you might need to like fact check me on this exactly, but it's more than a third of yeah, Americans right. are pre-diabetic, which is like, that's, I mean, it's not surprising, but it is also astounding at the same time. A third. That's astounding. You know, 10, 15 years from now, we could have a population where half of people are either pre-diabetic or diabetic. And, and there are some countries already reached that number, like in the Middle East. I mean, so, I mean, that'd be a good time to kind of talk about maybe, you know, what's happening at Ketone IQ. Um, yeah. You know, is there is there sort of like a mission around that w- with y'all? Or are you more focused on sort of nootropics and performance? Yeah, how does that come into, um, you know, what you guys are doing with your mission? I think for, for HVMN, for Health Vibe on Nutrition and Ketone IQ, we did start off by focusing on performance and start focusing, uh, you know, we started focusing with uh, cyclists and triathletes and all that. What we have sort of evolved into is more into, you know, the more research that we are seeing these days, the role of exogenous ketones and endogenous ketones in metabolic health, in therapeutic users, in Alzheimer's, in cardiovascular disease, in diabetes. Then we realize, hang on a minute, performance and health, they are on the same uh, spectrum, like disease population and like elite athletes, they're all humans, right? One is just better at metabolism and the other is just having dysfunctional metabolism. So if ketones has a role in improving metabolism, improving either energetics, uh, giving you more efficient fuel, for your brain, for your heart, for your muscles, plus giving signaling properties on, you know, anti-inflammation, on uh, lowering your oxidative damage, then it will work for both the elite athletes and the disease population. So why not? Let's actually go out there, find out information. First of all, you know, invest in, in research around these areas. Second of all, really relay with transparency and scientific integrity, the information, the data, and the science around this. And three, let the people make informed decisions, right? Because at the end of the day, people will always make the right decision that's right for their own health. If this product is actually as good as I say it is, it will sell itself, even though it tastes like it works. That's what we say. Yeah, it works really well, (laughs) objectively. I've, I use it in the context of sort of mental acuity and performance from mm-hmm. a workflow standpoint. So um, I've used it probably double digit times now, um, especially after your team sent me a box. I, I am going to become a subscriber simply because, and here's why, uh, when I take it, I feel like my brain is operating at a higher level than it is before. And again, I know I've said this a few times, N of one here, but that's my lived experience and it's tangible. It's not just like kind of subtle, like when you take, you know, L-theanine and a bit of caffeine. This is serious, especially when you stack it maybe with a low dose of caffeine. 
it's like rocket fuel. I get more done on my to-do list and my writing and my emails uh, than with anything else I've ever taken. And I've tried things like modafinil and, and the more amphetamine-driven like Adderall and whatnot. This seems to be uh, a, obviously a way healthier alternative with way less downsides. And, you know, frankly, like it works better in my opinion. Um, yeah. So that's and been my lived experience with the product. Um, I'm pretty interested to see how kind of like the ketone market evolves because it's been... It's been fairly, um, fairly underappreciated, I'd say, over the last few years, and it's just now coming to to the surface. Um, it's been around in the biohacking community for a little bit, but I think it's just now becoming normalized. And I think your opportunity is uh, your challenge, and your opportunity is: can you normalize it? And if so, this is going to be an immense, immense business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's shown to improve performance um, to a certain degree. It's shown improved recovery. Um, I am really interested to see the effect of ketones on sleep as well. Um, we haven't had a specific study that looks at sleep, but recovery, yes. Um, and, you know, sleep could be part, a subset of recovery. Uh, we also have seen stark improvement in cognitive impairment. And we have seen for our own, you know, government contract, the $6 million SDTR phase two that we are doing with special command, we are seeing an improved hypoxic acclimatization uh, especially in high altitude and we're looking at you know improved cognition in hypoxia whereas if you don't have ketones you get a decline in cognition because of the lack of oxygen so your brain is slowing down because it needs to preserve its basic function before going further and we have seen that ketones actually help mitigate that that decline so there's a lot of avenues in, in research areas as well as benefit of ketone. And as you said, it's, it's a, the challenge is getting the information out there. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing right now, you know, having podcasts and really trying to reach out to partners, to, to audience and, and see how many people we can actually reach and, and educate. And, you know, it doesn't help that there are also quite a few products of exogenous ketones out there. You've got ketone salts, you've got MCT, you've got ketone esters, and you've got R13-butyndiol, which is what ketone IQ is. And if, you know, as as you know, you know, supplement companies, they're always very competitive. It's a very competitive space. And you get people who are, you know, supplement companies who are interested in really spending time and effort investing in educating people you know, broadening the science and really invest the the effort in, in improving either flavor or cost. And then you get other companies who are so focused on just shitting on their competitors, you know, for the lack of better words. And, and you know, people need to then find out for themselves, like which company, what sort of product is better for themselves. I always tell people like, this is not, you know, an all be all sort of solution here. This is not a miracle drug. And I don't care how you reach ketosis, how you elevate your blood ketone levels. Some people find it easier to do ketogenic diet. Some people find it easier to do intermittent fasting. And some people just need MCT oil and their ketone levels very high already. And some people feel like ketone IQ could be a, you know, a better solution. So for me, it's better to have some ketone in your blood than none at all. So that's that's what my philosophy is and ketone iq is one of the most efficient and easy way for for you to elevate your blood ketone levels but if you're already doing well without ketone iq i would say go for it like continue and and at the end of the day healthy lifestyle it's it's a lifestyle it's about consistency it's not 
a trend that you do it for you know a year or two and then you stop and you know um, for the prolonged effect it's it's a matter of consistency products speak for themselves at yeah. the end of the day and it seems like your team is playing the long game here I know you've been at it for a few years you know building up the content side of things um, by way of sort of educating the consumer in a longer tail way and and getting the products I mean this is like a very cliche or even arguably obvious advice but getting the product in the hands of the right people um, can sort of pr proliferate and disseminate the message in, into the right communities and you know you have a very sticky product your product works like you feel it almost instantaneously when you take it so you know suffice to say i think that will have a big impact on whether or not your team is successful longer term and and if i were a betting man i would bet on the team right um i also think more and more your timing could be correct here um you know you have folks sort of waking up to the fact that taking care of themselves is important and more and more people are correcting sort of like the basic lifestyle things i mentioned before nutrition sleep exercise and a lot of folks now are turning to that sort of like next tier which is like what are the cheat codes or supplements or things that I could sort of augment the basics with to get ahead? Because at the end of the day, life is just a game of trying to stack chips in your favor. And if there's a sort of, uh, you know, this is basically a free lunch is what I'm saying. And if you can stack this chip in your favor and, and perform a little bit better cognitively and have some of the other, you know, metabolic benefits you mentioned around recovery and sleep, et cetera, potentially as well, this be kind of becomes a no brainer and potentially becomes part of the zeitgeist. So, Again, I don't mean to be doing like a shameless plug for you. No, here, I, but, I mean, um, we, we might actually use this for, for an <laughs> ad. I mean, he kind of <laughs> described the product even better than I could myself, you know, like I, I'm glad I'm glad it helps people. And I think, you know, there's so much more we, we can do and we will be doing, which is improving the taste. Um, we have a, a new taste actually coming. We got a, a version. So this, we call it version 2.0, right? Because you've tried the version 1.0, which is the ketone ester. And by nature, the molecule is just so bitter, it's very hard to flavor. So this is 2.0 and we already have a, a version 2.1 and we are already thinking of version 3.0. It's always iteration of, of the product. It's always improving. And to us, we are not married to a single molecule. If tomorrow science says there is another exogenous keto molecule that works better, works faster, and it's easier to, mm -hmm. to, to down, it's cheaper to manufacture, we'll talk to the, the people who invented it and we'll actually sell it for them because ultimately that is what health via modern nutrition is. But anyway, while talking about products, you know, um, while I want to, you know, get you in front of, of our listeners and talking about your story, um, how did you go from all of that, like, you know, CrossFit, Biohack, to suddenly skincare? Yeah, so... Disco is the brand, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're at the end of 2022 for those listening right now, mid-December. So just to give you some context, yeah. I I sort of moved on from the gyms at the end of 2018 and started working on Disco in the beginning of 2019. And the impetus for that change was really around you know, personal uh, dissatisfaction with my skin. And so as with many businesses, it was around a frustration, right? So I, I sought out a number of different um, products through um, internet research, speaking to my dermatologist and just sort of becoming a, a student of, of Google, right? And, and figured out how to sort of improve my skin that way. And it was sort of a random amalgamation of like a women's skincare brand product, a dermatology-based product, some random like tincture, like pure oil or something from Amazon, Etc. And you get the point, right? It's just a random combination. And I realized like, okay, I've seen the success of, you know, brands like, you know, Dollar Shave Club and Harry's in the shave space. Why is there not a men's skincare brand, a singular brand that is a fun, exciting, approachable brand to the wide spectrum of different types of men that has all the basic skincare products they need under one roof? 
So yeah, the nucleus of, of, of the business was basically like consolidating the basic skincare routine under one roof in a fun, approachable brand, which you now see as Thisco. So we launched at the end of 2019. We've been in business just over three years and, uh, you know, have, have grown quite nicely in that time as well. And I think I still think we're actually quite early in the space, which I'm sure you're, you probably feel the same way in the ketone, exogenous ketone space. You know, men t caring about their skin has been this like sort of cultural shift that's apparently been a long time coming. And I think it's still very much in its burgeoning stages. So that's what I've been up to the last few years. It's been a roller coaster of an experience uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective, ups and downs, big fundraising rounds, small fundraising rounds, running out of money here, putting things on the credit card, like the traditional like, oh, oh shit, you know, uh, moments that a lot of founders experience um, I've sort of been through. So it's been very transformational. Uh, I think fortunately we've been able to help a lot of men with their skin along the way. So it feels quite good. Um, and yeah, generally speaking, like I'm very happy with the business. We have a good core lean team and are growing nicely. So that's kind of been my last three or four years and what I've been focused on. And uh, yeah, again, like it couldn't have been more transformational in more ways than one. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree that, you know, men's skincare is very, very almost like not talked about. And especially in Western countries, I feel like men are like, you know, it's I'm too manly to talk about skincare. Whereas in Asia, if you look at Korea, um, men put a lot of effort big deal. to to yeah on the on their skincare. And, you know, you a lot of people say, oh, you're Asian, you know, you don't have to worry about skincare and you don't have to take care of yourself. You know, you just age or you don't age until you reach a certain age and then you just you know, start disappearing. But <laughs> at the end of the day, like people don't know how much effort is being put in. You know, even if you're Asian, like you've got to take care of it. And people never realize how much they should actually take care of it until they, they come to come up with a you know until they, they they come across a problem with it if they have suddenly have acne have breakouts and all that and then suddenly they're looking at okay maybe i should have taken care of my skin you know a bit a little bit earlier so in terms of tidbits for our, our listeners what are the top three tips you can give to men who want to take care of their skin or if they want to start looking into skincare yeah, I, I, I almost struggle to understand why people don't take care of their skin. I think there's, of course, a balance, right? As with anything, you could care arguably too much about something. And especially when you get into the weeds of like physical appearance, that can be quite deleterious or dangerous, psychologically speaking. So I think with anything, like with the CrossFit conversation we had earlier, there's a balance to be had. But assuming that you want a reasonable amount of investment to at least maintain or preserve or potentially improve incrementally the way you look, um, there's a few like very basic things you can do. Um, it might be a bit more than three, but I'll try to keep it around five. Uh, one is just staying hydrated. So drinking enough water. I know that's like a very basic, probably annoying tip, but yeah, cheers. Let's have a glass <laughs> of water while we do that. So drinking enough water is one. Uh, two is just keeping a generally like hygienic and clean environment around where you put your face. So try not to touch your face, especially often. Um, and if you do, make sure you've either have clean hands or just got out of the shower. Um, and that also goes around um, your pillowcases as well. So pillowcases can be a pretty um, big culprit for um, sort of maintaining uh, bacteria. So you'll want to change those once, if not twice a week. Uh, so that's a second one. Um, three would be nutrition. So the skin is your largest organ in your body. I don't 
a lot of people don't know that. And it's just very reflective of what's going on inside, right? So before I even talk about skincare products, you need to sort of sort out the um, hydration of your body, the cleanliness of your environment, and you know what's going on from a nutrition standpoint um, before we even talk about products. So generally tending to avoid uh, gluten, seed oils. Um, for some people, dairy. I, I, I do fine with dairy. Um, but th those are sort of like the, the first three things I would look at. And from there, you know, the fourth thing would be, you know, having a minimal but potent skincare routine. So generally for men, less is more. Um, just having a basic cleanser um, that's non-commodogenic, which means like it doesn't clog your pores, uh, is important. I would use that twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. Having a, a, a moisturizer that keeps your skin um, balanced from an oil perspective is important. And if you want to take it a bit further than that, you can use things like retinols, um, which helps basically like um, refresh your skin layer and keep you know the top layer of your skin looking healthy. And the last thing I would probably add, uh, especially if you're of, of whiter uh, skin tone, someone like myself, is, is a sunblock. Um, just make sure it's a zinc oxide and not a sunscreen, which has a bunch of harmful chemicals in it. Most sunscreens do. So try to stick to a sunblock. Uh, zinc in particular is great because it sits on top of your skin. And when you cleanse it, it'll you know come off. So um, that's sort of like the basic skincare routine. The fifth thing would be, you know, more advanced things like, you know, sort of esthetician driven procedures. So getting facials once a month, if you're really interested in going down the rabbit hole, uh, you can get chemical peels, um, which basically like remove the top layer of your skin every, you know, six to eight weeks. That's something I do. Um, I augment those with micro needling sessions, which, you know, have plasma rich platelets in them as well. So uh, I know I'm kind of getting a bit down the rabbit hole, but um, basically what they do with that is the vampire facial. They extract uh, blood from your uh, from your, your veins. Um, they spin the blood, you know, extract the highest um, stem cell portion of that blood, and then they needle your face with this like very soft uh, needling tool, and then they rub the plasma-rich platelets on your face. So it basically uh, heals, it speeds up the stem cell adaption in your face to basically keep you looking younger longer. So you know, those are not that expensive. They probably sound like thousands of dollars. Right. Know, chemical peels anywhere from like 120 to $200, depending on what part of the country you're in. And the needling can be anywhere from 150 to up to three or $400, depending on if you're in Beverly Hills or you're in the middle of the country, right? Right. Um, so those would be kind of the more advanced things I would do uh, if I was looking to like really be aggressive about turning around and reversing aging or maintaining a very youthful appearance. Um, but apart from that, um, you know, I'd say the main thing really is the nutrition side of things because that really is reflective. Your skin's very reflective of what you eat. Right. And and it's you know, obviously, you know, both hydration and exercise also help with, you of know, the, that your pores and all that. But between some guests that I've had on podcasts and, and some of the listeners, listeners, I'm sure a lot of them um, may or may not agree with, you know, Ben's like tips and advice around this. And, and some of them are anti sunscreen, for example, because they believe that I'm anti sunscreen too, just to be very clear. Right. I'm so pro sunblock. sunblock. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. I'm, I'm very anti sunscreen. Yeah. 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 Um, the zinc just sits right on top of your face. And uh, at the end of the day, you can wipe that right off. Um, the problem Got with it. sunscreen is that actually absorbs into your skin and your body has to metabolize that. So that's where you have um, quite staunch arguments against sunscreen. And I am very much against sunscreen as Got well, it. just to be clear. Got it. And speaking of retinol, and retinol is a derivative of vitamin A, and I know there's tretinoin, which is a stronger version, uh, a more intensive version, if you would, um, that does cause uh, flakiness and redness and all that, but it does work clinically. It has been proven mm -hmm. to reduce wrinkles um, after six months to uh, 12 months of application. Um, what are your thoughts around 
usage, usage of tretinoin or retinol over a long period of time? Yeah, look, I'm not an endocrinologist, so I, I can't speak to the sort of really technical elements to it. I think with anything, it just depends on the person, right? So if you're someone that is okay with um, potentially um, minimally uh, deleterious effects over a long period of time and value the way you look, I would say retinol especially is quite safe. We actually are developing a, a more natural alternative for a night serum using bacchiochiol. I pronounced that totally wrong, um, but it's a more natural sort of version of retinol, um, which we believe to be slightly safer. What is it from? Uh, I don't actually know. Um, it's in the early stages, but this has sort of yeah. been like the, uh, the, the thesis around the product development with this product is, can we create a night serum for men that's quote unquote natural, um, which mm -hmm. can mean a lot of things, but in our case uh, is basically using uh, a plant version uh, of retinol, right? So I would say I personally now use retinol. I use it two or three times a week. I use a low dose, 0.25%. Um, um, and to be honest, like it's totally changed my skin. So I would say it becomes a balancing act of like, uh, how do you want to look? And, you know, what does the clinical say? And to be honest, like retinol seems to be pretty safe. I have also used tretinoin as well, um, but I don't use it currently. And there's no real reason for that other than that I'm happy with my current regimen. So I, I don't want to get in the weeds on tretinoin, mostly because I don't know enough about their literature. But I would say, again, like if you have a really strong dermatologist who really understands both topical skin and then also um, the insides of the human body and they recommend it for your skin, I, I'd say it's probably pretty safe. Um, you want you will run into trouble with certain dermatologists who are just throwing solutions at you, similar to a traditional MD, right? Where they you say this and they say, well, just take this, right? You want to avoid folks like that. If if your dermatologist says, you know, and you're in their office for acne or whatever reason, and they say, well, let's look at your lifestyle first, you're probably in a good place there with them. Um, you want to generally align with MDs that look at lifestyle, um, nutrition, sleep, and the basics before they go to prescribing things for you. Yeah, I think. That's the story of a healthcare system in general, right? Like, Fortunately so. Yeah, it's like you know, people um, and doctors are incentivized to prescribe drugs to treat symptoms and not necessarily the root cause. And most of the time with chronic diseases and non-communicable diseases are you know, mainly caused by lifestyle. And that can easily be prevented by you know, adjusting your lifestyle. So that's the reality that we live in. Uh, sadly, um, but I, I'm really glad to see, especially in this biohacking space and in this like, you know, space where a lot of knowledge is being spread around by uh, people like Andrew Huberman, Lex Friedman, you know, all these big podcasters who are out there spreading. You too. All the signs. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying here. Uh, um, You've got your most goal. important ever guest on, right? Exactly. Now, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, one day this this. This this video is gonna hit you know hundred million views and at least and people gonna start you know, taking care of themselves. If it ever does, it'll be because you use one of my clips as an ad, and right? And we put paid money behind. The exactly. Okay. There I'll you take, go. I'll take any PR as good PR. <laughs> they say. Yeah. They're gonna say you know that video particularly with Ben Smith, you know, interview by Dr. Mm. Latman. So it's my inspiration to start taking care of myself and my skin. Hey, if if that's the case, so be it. I, that that will make me selfishly feel great. Yeah. Um, so. In terms of you know your routine, you I know you talked a bit on on your your training routine, on how you train, how often you train, and then you you talked about your your skin routine. Is there anything that any routine that you're currently practicing that is specifically to mental health? Yeah, so 
my journey over the last 10 years sort of started with the more physical body and then it got into the internal body. So nutrition um, and sort of like the longevity hacks. So taking supplements based on my blood work, now using the sauna and cold plunge and using sort of like cheat codes like, you know, this product um, to improve my performance in various aspects of my life. And the last sort of port of call, especially the last few years, has more been, um, I still do all those things, by the way, but it has been, you know, I've sort of arrived at the mental health frontier, right? And, you know, in my view, the physical is actually quite easy to get in line. Like if you get your sleep in order, you exercise reasonably well, you keep a good uh, nutritional plan, and you generally have a good environment, clean air, clean water, etc., it's pretty pretty easy or pretty simple, I should say, and, and affordable to, to live a pretty healthy life in that in that uh, sense. But from a mental health perspective, that for for everyone is is usually the the last sort of frontier and the most difficult to sort of like get bring into balance, if you will. So for me, I've been in therapy for a few years, not for anything in particular. There was no like acute incident growing up, so I'm very fortunate in that sense. But having a really strong person to speak to, I mean that not physically strong, obviously. Um, but, but sort of uh, philosophically speaking, has been instrumental to me sort of leveling up in my life, both in, in terms of improving how I show up at work, improving how I show up in my relationships, and really sort of helping me uncover my shadows. And by shadows, I mean, like maybe, you know, default behavior patterns or things I picked up as a child or sort of my tone, etc., and, and working on those. So that's been really helpful. Um, if it's not too nuanced to talk about, or, or excuse me, uh, fringe to talk about psychedelics as well, yeah. um, have been really helpful to me. Um, used appropriately in the right set and setting um, in heroic doses. So psilocybin, ayahuasca, kana, peyote, uh, and others um, in, in a sort of ceremonial way with intention and, and integration after have been sort of eye-opening and have really sort of like exacerbated what I've been doing in therapy and expedited the learnings from that. Um, so that's been quite helpful. And more recently, my, my yoga, meditation, and breathwork practice have been instrumental for me. So um, maybe about six months ago, I started doing regular breath work every morning. So I'd follow like a Kundalini slash tantric, uh, 15 to 20 minute breath work exercise. And that's been immense for me. Uh, one in terms of like starting off the day strongly, uh, on, on good, you know, sort of grounded footing, but also just sort of to get a bit woo woo moving sort of energy around. And, um, you can believe that or you, or you can't believe it. It's totally up to, to you to decide. But I personally, as someone who's generally pretty skeptical, have been blown away by the benefits of sort of yoga and, and those teachings. So, um, those are sort of like the core three. And the last I would add is just reading. So reading as much as possible, both in physical form and via audible has been a game changer for me. So over the last sort of two, three years, I've gone through probably 150 to 200 books. And then I've found sort of like 10 to 20 to be like my core. Like these are, these are like sort of the ideologies that I want to want to take from and sort of build my own around. And I've reread those, uh, you know, two or three times now. So, um, yeah, I'd say having a therapist using psychedelics, um, having a breath work and yoga and mindfulness practice, and then reading, those have been my core four that I've sort of delved into over the last few years. And it's been, it's been really transformational and people notice when you're doing that kind of work too. So for anyone out there that's struggling and, or, you know, thinking about sort of like taking the plunge with these more mindfulness tactics and tools, I, I can't speak highly enough of the things I just mentioned. Amazing. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I only started meditation like maybe a couple of months ago since August and I have been a scientist through and through all my life and I've always been very skeptical and very mm -hmm. critical when it comes to evidence-based um, science. And the reason I started meditation is because I came across this podcast, um, School of Greatness, um, Dr. Amishi Jha, and she spoke about using meditation about 12 minutes a day 
to improve focus of uh, military personnel that she's you know have has a grant for, and she showed significant improvement in focus and just by meditating for twelve hours per day. So twelve minutes per day. Twelve twelve minutes per day. That's my uh, yeah twelve minutes per day, and that was a that was enough to convince me to give it a try. And after I tried it, I was like, this cannot be that like obvious. Like I, I, I every time I, I come across like sort of stress or anxiety or, or just in general, like I feel not at peace about things. Mm. I do it and it makes very, very big difference. Yeah, well, I think, I think looking at it in a modern society, uh, meditation specifically, I think it's mostly because we're constantly inundated with um, external and and sort of uh, social media driven in, uh, inputs, right? So like you constantly, let me rephrase that, we're constantly being inundated by other people, uh, apps, responsibilities, and we never take a moment to just stop and think. And the reality that I've found is that most of us know the answers to our problems. Mm-hmm. We just never slow down enough to actually think through them, right? So whether it's a problem in your business, uh, a challenge you're having in your relationship, maybe it's something to do with money. Who knows? It doesn't really matter the problem. But you never actually stop and just sit there unencumbered. You know, no people, no, no you know, external uh, electronic devices to just think about the solution. And the reality is we're all sentient, pretty intelligent beings, and we usually know the answer. So ever since I started doing that, I've been meditating for a few years, but not until, um, you know, six, seven months ago that I start regularly doing it with the Tantra Kundalini meditations. Things have really improved in my life. And it's because I, I genuinely believe the biggest reason for that is just because I've stopped and, you know, been able to actually use my mind um, versus just go, go, go and never actually taking a moment to just think about my problems and what the potential solutions might be. So that's how I've seen the benefits. It's also just very like grounding and peaceful as well on top of that. So probably the combination of those things, but yeah, just stop and think. That's a very wonderful takeaway message. Just stop and think, and you're not doing it for anyone else and you're just doing it for yourself. Judiciously selfish. There, I got a second attempt at it there from earlier. I got redemption. That's just what I wanted. Is there any um, closing remarks you would like to add on top of all these wonderful, you know, golden nuggets and advice that you've given so far? Yeah, I mean, with most of the stuff we talked about, they can be a bit esoteric and a bit, I don't want to say technical because that would mean that I'm technical and I'm certainly not, not, at least not as technical as you, obviously. But, you know, I would say try these things. If you're, if you're skeptical, try them. There's almost no downside to exercising, sleeping more, meditating, you know, taking supplements based on your blood work, any of these things we talked about, uh, and just see how you feel. And if you start to feel better because you're taking these steps in the, the positive direction, keep doubling down. That's been my experience. I'm just some normal guy from Maryland, and I've been able to kind of like biohack my way to near perfect blood work, you know, a healthy body fat percentage and, you know, generally really great energy levels. And I'm certainly no genius. So if I can do it, anyone can. Um, such, such a humble person you are. Such a humble <laughs> I don't know if my mom and dad would disagree. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'll take that yeah, compliment I, though. Can we just send them? Can we, can we bite size that? <laughs> just send that to them? Yeah. So it, for our listeners who are, who are listening and, and for our viewers who are watching the video, where can they find you, your company and all of that? Yeah, so me personally, I, I started creating content about health and wellness um, pretty recently on both Twitter and Instagram, and that is just at itmebenji, so I-T-M-E-B-E-N-J-I, itmebenji, and then my company, Disco, um, my men's skincare brand is just Let's Disco, so uh, L-E-T-S-D-I-S-C-O, and that's where you can find us. Why the name Disco? 
yeah, I wanted it to be fun and approachable. And, you know, frankly, I'm someone, I really enjoy house music uh, and disco music. So I want it to be memorable. It's easy to spell, it's easy to remember, and it's fun. So for those reasons and more, that's why disco. He's a party boy. Oh, let's not, let's not incriminate me live. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> psych- I have been known psychedelics known and house music, bit. you know. I have been known to stay up a little bit late once or twice a month. But, there you, um, go. you know, I don't want to incriminate myself too much here. All right. Well, um, there you have it. Um, it has been a really great conversation with you, Ben. Yeah, it's cheers. been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for being on HVMN Podcast and can't wait to see what's next for both of us. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate thank you. It.